for literally every other financial asset, there's always a price people will be willing to sell at. There's always an opportunity cost of some other asset that they could have instead. For a decent proportion of the supply of Bitcoin, it will never be sold. And that creates a completely new market dynamic. Hello there. How are you all? Did you have a good weekend? I did. I took my daughter to her first concert, live rock concert, went to see the Arctic Monkeys, which is pretty awesome. Also, I'm eight days into 75 Hard, something I saw on Twitter. I'm doing 75 days of no alcohol, training twice a day, eating clean, feeling good. I've got to drink a gallon of water a day as well, which is pretty hard. Anyway, hope you're all well. Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have finally got Bitcoin Venice co-author Alan Farrington on the podcast. Well, back on the podcast. He made a cameo appearance once before. Now, I interviewed Alan as part of a broader Bitcoin versus crypto discussion a few years ago. But while we're out in Miami, we finally got him on the show for a solo recording to talk about all things economics, Bitcoin, and fiat fuckery. Now, it was one of the favorite shows that we made in that sprint. Danny loved it. I loved it. And while I know you're going to enjoy this one, if you've got any questions about it or anything else, you can hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Alan? Pete? How are you? I'm very well. How are you? (laughs) Yeah, I'm good, man. This has taken some time. It has, yeah. We're doing it in Miami as well, right? I know. <laughs> not, not London, not Bedford, not Edinburgh. Not Manchester. We've done the, we've both made the pilgrimage, though, so we may as well. Yeah, well, good to see you, man. Um, a long time coming. Uh, Danny is a particular fan yep. of yours. Oh, thanks, Danny. I genuinely think it's <laughs> one of the best Bitcoin books I've read, maybe the best. You've actually read the whole book. Well, uh, I'm about. I'm not joking, I've not read the whole book. So I read the article, by, I don't know when mm. it was, a couple of years ago, and then I'm probably three quarters of the way through the book at the moment. Still working nice. on it, but it's, pretty, it's a long book. Do you want to something funny, right? So Sasha is, is a co-author in the book, yeah. people don't know. He, he's not here this year. He came here as in Miami at the conference. He came to the conference last year, and we'd had this running joke about how like, literally neither of us have actually read the book. And so he read it in one sitting on the flight to Miami because he was so worried about <laughs> like people asking him about it and being like, oh shit, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Presumably you read it in the editing stage though. Well, not really because it's, uh, I, I'm being, I'm obviously being a bit facetious as to do with the way that we wrote it. Like I have read everything in it. Yeah. I've never read it cover to cover. Because that's, it came that's from articles. I mean. Yeah. Because it, it's, I mean, even in the final form, it's, um, it's a series of essays. They're obviously very related to one another, but yeah. we we made some effort to tie them together a bit more, but we deliberately didn't do that too much because they, some of them are just too different, basically. Like, it would have obviously been forced past a certain point. Um, so, yeah, so they were all written as essays. Probably most of them, I forget exactly the number of chapters, uh, but yeah, or maybe like half the content was written before we even decided to turn it into a book. Um, it's the only book I've ever read that says, don't flick the genitals. <laughs> See, I don't remember when it's... <laughs> when does it say in, that? In the MMA what are we talking about? About MMA. Oh, right, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... So basically, Danny's going to interview you. Cool. <laughs> I'm going to be the foil in this one. So hold on. So he read 408 pages or whatever it was in, eight hours, in an eight-hour flight. I think the actual content of the book is only about 340. There's a lot of end notes. There's a lot is of uh, like bibliography oh, and stuff like that. Yeah, I've It's not. a long flight. I just did it. It's like nine hours or something. And so, then there's another one if you go to Edinburgh as well. It's plenty of time to read a book. Yeah, uh, I've not read the book. 
So this interview is going to be great. <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes I read the books, but sometimes two people who haven't read the book talking about the book. Three Maybe people. Maybe we should interview Danny because he's read. <laughs> yeah, Danny. So Danny, what's this book about? Uh, no, but sometimes uh, it's better to. I, I like to have the chapter titles mm -hmm. because that gives a structure. But I don't want to read the book because I want to be told what's in the book mm -hmm. sometimes uh but then i have read some of your articles i read that other paper you put together the one where you trashed ethereum yeah probably only strong survive yes yeah it wasn't really trashing ethereum it not that i'm a fan of ethereum is is trashing like DeFi. i'm doing i can't even bring myself to Actually, say DeFi as if it's like a real thing <laughs> DeFi. DeFi. yeah um uh, and obviously uh, that was a while ago yeah that was a while yeah. ago that was the basis of the only previous time i've been on what bitcoin did i don't know if you remember danny and i were chatting about that just before we started when were you on before good question yeah what? so we, i, I <laughs> what oh shit yeah of course yeah, yeah. we had like four people didn't yeah. we yeah yeah i remember yeah. now um only the strong survive you basically immortalize it in a drawing for me once as well I, I don't remember that. What, what so, was the drawing of? So, so I, it's obviously it wasn't. It's about the traditional finance sector. You know where you you, you had uh, finance and then you went like this. Oh, that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, the fiat finance stack. Yeah. yeah, that's one of my better artistic works. Yeah, but I was very I, happy with that. But I think that's the DeFi stack as well. In some ways. Probably. Yeah, it's similar. I think it's... I think the DeFi stack's... A lot more obviously stupid, though. No, actually, it isn't. So it's coming back to me what the what the captions on that were, and I'm pretty sure the very first one is like at the top. It's real productivity yeah. or, or actual productivity, something like that. Yeah. I'm sure, Danny can probably find this quite quickly. Financial um, engineering. Yeah, then financial engineering, then the mess, and then too much leverage print the difference so actually no it doesn't even make sense for DeFi because there's no real productivity it's like a closed loop it's like print the difference just plugs into financial engineering we just goes round and round we put a new arrow in yeah put it there uh but danny 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 talks about you a lot should i be worried danny, well, <laughs> in the lead up to this article no, to this interview. that's not true he's because well, like, we were trying to get you on the show for our year mm. <laughs> danny danny's got posters of you on his bedroom wall. <laughs> only a few <laughs> only a few uh he he says it's the best book he's ever uh that's ever been written about bitcoin that's very kind i think he's amongst them i don't sure. think it's even about bitcoin but we can get into that if you want well i kind of went down the rabbit hole mm. of reading like so ben prentice who works on the show mm -hmm. he's like key in Austrian economist, got me to read like Economics in One Lesson. Yeah, very and good. And then yep. um, how the, I can't remember the name of the other one. And then this was like the book I read off the back of those two. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a lot, it puts into practice a lot of what they say, but in like more Bitcoin terms, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dig into your background, background first, because <laughs> okay. uh, not everyone will know you. We know you. <laughs> what? Not no, everyone will know you. Some will have read some of your yeah, I don't even have a surname. That's... <laughs> Give us your background, man. How, how far back are we talking here? Like, so how did your mum and dad meet? <laughs> <laughs> how many times have you been over the border? No, like, what was your um, educational background? Like, what brought you to oh, here? Sure, to yeah, like yeah. This? Well, I studied math and philosophy at uni. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after that. Well, no, sorry, I, I did know that I wanted to do a PhD in math um, that fell apart for reasons that are 
probably not all that entertaining for this audience, but in the course of figuring that out, I kind of stumbled into a job in finance. Uh, really liked that job, did it for a long time. It's still the only like adult job I've ever had. Um, I think it was probably quite instrumental to my, it's cringe when I say this, but like Bitcoin journey, right? My Bitcoin uh, journey. My Bitcoin journey. Um, yeah, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into about like what that company did. Uh, it's, I was an investor basically okay. um, in, and what we invested in was almost entirely public companies. Just means like stocks on the stock market that you, probably people will have heard of a lot of them. Um, that was helpful for me in terms of my intellectual development with Bitcoin, because right when I joined, I sort of, it's not like I didn't like email everybody, but it was, it became known quite quickly that, you know, I liked Bitcoin. Um, but just because of what we invested in, we couldn't buy it. That was super helpful because that actually forced me for a long time to think more seriously about how this would affect businesses, if, if ever. I mean, because this is like 2015, 2016 when I started. Um, it pretty quickly became clear, you know, it would eventually start to affect some, if not, you know, maybe all in the very long run. Um, but that was very, very helpful for me um, because it's, I mean, it's led to, we were chatting right before we came on that at that firm, we did uh, investment in Blockstream, did investment in Lightning Labs. Um, and I think it's just, a, it's it's more, for me at least, it, was, it, it prompted a lot more rigorous thinking and was a lot more rewarding, I guess, in terms of the opportunities it gave me in the industry, to be frank as well, uh, rather than just, you know, back in 2015 saying, buy Bitcoin, and here's why, and then forgetting about it for 10 years, which is still perfectly valid. I'm sure a lot of people have done that and have, you know, have done very well out of it. Um, How big is that yeah. firm? Um, like people? People, I think it's about 1,500 people. Okay. It's pretty, it's pretty okay. decent. It's, it's very well known. I don't know if you like, want, I'm not deliberately not saying their name. It's, you can say their name. Yeah, okay. It's, uh, it's called Bailey Gifford. It's based in Edinburgh. Okay. And for them to invest in Bitcoin companies, was this mm -hmm. like a whole new division? Were you part of a no. group that, did you spearhead the idea that you should consider Bitcoin companies? Yes, I, I did do that. Um, but it was very well received. I, where I was going, I got distracted with like the Blockstream, the Lightning Lab stuff, um, is that the the way that they invest just completely generally like ignore bitcoin for now the way that they invest the philosophy i guess you could say that they they approach financial markets with is very unusual and i obviously wouldn't have categorized it this way at the time like i wouldn't even have known any of this terminology i i guess but they're basically very opposed to kind of fiat finance, like that little, you know, that chart mm. that I drew, like everybody there would have got that right away and would probably have approved. It might be a bit too on the edge. Um, they have, all this stuff is like, you just go on their website, the, the marketing slaps you in the face, but it's like very long-term outlook, um, both in, I would argue in absolute terms, but certainly compared to most of their competitors, a focus on they get branded as technology investors, which they don't really like because that's that's kind of a consequence of the approach. It's not the intention. The intention is long-termism, high-quality companies, but which are 
maximally disruptive, I think is maybe the most interesting one, the most kind of intangible and difficult to pin down, where their long-term potential, so you can probably immediately see where like Blockstream and Lightning Labs would ideally fit in this, their long-term potential comes from doing something, whether it's like a business model or a technology uh, that is radically new. And so there's a lot of risk in this. It's, you know, they're... Um, rightly, I think, categorized as being a kind of the extreme risk, the extremely risky end of the spectrum of what their clients would want to invest in. Their clients have just being typically massive pension funds, actually. But pension funds usually don't want risk. Or is well, it a no, no, small they do amount? Because, yeah, exactly. It would, be, it would typically be a very small amount of their overall portfolio. It would be by okay. far the riskiest part. But this, this whole outlook um, obviously is very contrary to, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll just say fiat finance. Why not? I, mm. Obviously, that's a bit kind of snide. We can go into a bit more detail what I actually mean by that. It's sort of a Bitcoin Twitter thing to say. Um, I think it's quite Austrian as well, actually. And I think the really interesting thing is that they they don't they certainly don't advertise it as that. I I don't want to say they they're not aware of it. I mean, I've had plenty of conversations internally about this, and people find the idea really interesting, but. It's not directly relevant to what they're doing, so I guess they probably wouldn't think to advertise it that way. Um, but it's interesting that it's kind of, in their case, it emerged very much from first principles, which I think is what a lot of people, especially if they haven't had academic training in economics, but who nonetheless quite like the Austrian school. It's a very similar kind of comments that you'll get, and I, I'd include myself in that category, very similar kind of comments that you'd get from people like that that it just appeals from first principles um so that was all very roundabout way saying it that was all very helpful for me in general intellectual development just thinking about you know finance and economics but it lent itself very nicely to eventually there being opportunities with with bitcoin companies did yeah. you have to sell the business case of investing in bitcoin companies before you selected the companies or did you just pick one company well, no said, no no think? so what what was really nice about it was that it it fit their, I was just very lucky that it fit their overall philosophy. I didn't really need to make any particularly Bitcoin centric case. I mean, obviously right. I didn't ignore that that's a component of these businesses. But again, going back to what I was kind of very loosely describing as the the investment philosophy, the, the, the case is around extreme disruption, extremely long-term time horizon over which this disruption is likely to play out. And the, the Bitcoin element is kind of incidental to that. I mean, it could be any technology and, right. and you know, the vast, vast majority of their investments are obviously with, you know, non-Bitcoin, if that's the way you want to split the investable universe. Um, so that's, that's maybe one thing to keep in mind as well, that these are very, very, like very, very small in their overall, you know, handful of different portfolios that, that they manage. I think the exciting thing, though, is that obviously, if I'm right or even roughly right, if we are roughly right, that'll that'll increase over time for sure. Well, we're we're either right collectively or wrong. Yeah, and so if we're <laughs> right collectively, a number of these companies will be huge, game-changing companies mm-hmm. in you know, five, ten, twenty years. Um, yeah, I think we kind of kind of feel like we all win or lose together. 
I don't mm-hmm. think there's like a, a much of a middle ground. Uh, obviously, there's a argument that Bitcoin just becomes this asset like gold and you have some companies, but I kind of don't think it's going to work out like that. I think if we either win or we don't. <laughs> yeah, I think I agree with that. I, I can't see, I guess on a very long time horizon, that's probably true. It might not feel like that at various intermediate points though, right? Mm. It's probably never felt like that so far. I mean, certainly not to me. It doesn't feel like we've won yet. I feel, I feel like um, there's a year, year and a half, every four years, we feel like we're winning. <laughs> winning. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then and and then there's like this two and a half year period of like, I hope we win. <laughs> Maybe we won't. Yeah, but that's when question. all the good work gets done though. So that's, yeah. If you, if you have the right perspective, that's arguably more exciting. Well, it cleans out some of the crap. Yeah. And brings out some new ideas. Um, but we, um, I, we had a very interesting conversation yesterday with Rational Root, the big carrot. Uh, do you know him on Twitter? No. He's, um, he's, he's like a, he's a Bitcoin analyst, but he's uh, analyzes on-chain data. But he, uh, who was I explaining to this earlier? I can't remember, you were explaining Yeah, he explained the S-curve to me. So mm-hmm. I've seen the S-curve and I was like, yeah, I know technologies mm-hmm. have an S-curve. And I'll, I'll draw it out for you how he explained it to me earlier. Um, but essentially the way he explained it to me is that as Bitcoin started to get issued, you started to get this kind of like lockup of illiquid supply. So that's like your illiquid supply hodlers. Mm-hmm. And then you had this, um, but you had the total issuance. And up here is your liquid supply. Mm-hmm. And so that's been growing like that. But we hit this kind of inflection point at the last halving. So we've got like one, two. So they are first three halvings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now what's happening is that it's coming to come back here, but you've got the uh, liquid supply it's growing. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. this yeah, liquid supply is, you know, you know, this is your S-curve. And what it kind of made me realize is that it almost to get back to what you're saying, only the strong survive. Like this, is, this has been a really tough. Mm-hmm. These are tough mm-hmm. periods to wait out because because during this period you've got a fluctuation on the price. You don't really know if this is going to work. It feels like almost like some you know, beautiful design by Satoshi. <laughs> this kind of four year halving cycle that takes us in you know, to this through a growth phase and this kind mm-hmm. of contraction phase. But you know, if he's right here, there's going to be so much growth in Bitcoin. There's going to be a lot of capital available to yeah, invest yeah, in probably, other, couple, yeah. other companies. I, I can give you an interestingly different interpretation of this, by the way, and see what you make of it. Yeah. So I can link it back to the comments before too. That when I was in that job, obviously there was some consideration given to you know the price of Bitcoin. I, it's especially because it's disproportionately relevant to Bitcoin companies, right? You can't disentangle the two for probably fairly obvious reasons. Um, but even outside of that, just intellectual interest, like, you know, it, it was essentially my job to figure out what the uh, the, the fair value, let's say, was of um, of other kinds of investments. So it's worth, you know, giving it a shot with Bitcoin as well. And I basically concluded that uh, you, you just can't and you probably shouldn't either um, because and what I'm about to say, I think, is captured really nicely by that graph. It is priced in a really bizarre way that I'm not sure has ever previously been the case for any, like literally any asset on, on financial markets, which is that it's priced at the margin. Obviously, that's kind of definitionally true, but 
the people who are buying and selling at the margin are the ones who only kind of get it, right? The people who really get it never sell. So in order to predict what the price is going to be, you need to at least think, I mean, I don't think this is possible at all, but if you're convinced you can do it, what you have to be convinced of is that you can predict the spread of a meme, essentially, amongst people who like kind of believe it, but not fully. And once I appreciate, I mean, I think that's true. You can disagree. Anyone can disagree with that. But once I appreciated that, however many years ago, I was like, nah, you can't do this. Like, I'm just not going to try anymore. Well, the way <laughs> and I, I think that's what that represents. Or it's one way of interpreting that, so, that graph. I see it differently. I see what you have here, the uh, illiquid supply of Bitcoiners, mm -hmm. and what you have here are uh, in the in the liquid supply, mm -hmm. what being trading, are... Uh, uh, I don't want to say fiat people because that's derogatory. I think it's people who are trying to make fiat out of Bitcoin. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And and what you've got over time, if you've got less of a supply to be trading in that, in that area, you could still probably make great returns. But mm -hmm. what what they're doing, you've got this growing supply of Bitcoiners who are okay. But the thing is, that the the people at the top become the people at the bottom. I don't think that's necessarily mm -hmm. true. Well, I not think, all of them. It's not deterministic. Yeah. But in order for the people at the bottom to grow. Some of the, it's. I think this is deterministically true that some of the people in the middle have to become them, and so you get. If if you really want to like reverse engineer, well, how can you get price out of this? It's what the people in the middle are thinking <laughs> at that moment. So, are you saying uh, that like my Bitcoin could be worth a million dollars because I'm not willing to sell until a million dollars? Oh, I guess that. Yeah. Well. I, <laughs> Worth it to you, not worth it in absolute terms. Yeah. But yeah, that, but that's related to it. Yeah. But I, I suspect that even with you, that's probably not entirely true. I think this is the super interesting thing about Bitcoin that, that this is, I didn't really explain this before. This is the part that I think is genuinely new. Like no asset has had this before. For almost every other, well, I should know, probably for literally every other financial asset, there's always a price people will be willing to sell at. There's always an opportunity cost of some other asset that they could have instead. For obviously not the entire supply of Bitcoin, maybe not even a majority of it, but for a decent proportion of the supply of Bitcoin, it will never be sold. And that creates a completely new market dynamic, which I think is, if you really tease this out properly, you should you should try to, you can try to predict it. Maybe on a short-term basis, you can do reasonably well trading in and out of it, but longer, longer term, I would suggest is a bad idea. So the price is a reflection of how many Bitcoiners we've created? I think so, yeah. I think that's as sensible an interpretation as any. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. So and then just flipping back, um, just a short question back to the investment thesis of the firm you work for. The reason they want ultra long term is because a pension fund can be long term and can take those risks. In not that, really. It's no. it's not even really about that. I mean, when I say most of their clients are pension funds, that's by assets, not by sort of individuals. Like they have retail products as okay. well. It's really more. The, the answer is not as interesting as that i think it's every every pension fund would be in a similar position where they want exposure to basically as many hopefully uncorrelated returns of different asset classes as possible okay and so it's just very like i mean this isn't even a controversial one this is like it's nowhere near as controversial as something like bitcoin it's just public equities very high growth probably very long-term 
holding period. And did you come into Bitcoin uh, as an Austrian or did you discover Kinda, Austrian yeah. through it? Okay. Yeah, so I, um, I've told this story a couple of times. It's, it's not really all that interesting. It's, it's almost more, it's interesting in terms of not having any elements that are like, I don't say, <laughs> almost it's, it's interesting because it's uninteresting. It was just a very slow process for me, there was no like aha moment. There were, there's no like big event that, you know, suddenly made me realize the importance of Bitcoin. But Austrianism was important. So I mentioned before I studied maths and philosophy. I was a student when I came across it. Those are obviously both pretty helpful. Uh, completely coincidentally was very well read in Austrian economics. So it appealed from that point of view. And probably the final component is the only basically real job I'd had. So I don't count like, you know, I did all kinds of stuff in uni, like flipping burgers and stuff like that. But the only real job I'd had was a software engineer. So that was also very helpful. And I consider myself incredibly lucky to have, you know, to have been in that position when I did first come across it. Um, I, I think there, I, I always remember this article by a, um, Jameson Lopp, which is, I think we've referenced, Danny probably knows this better than I do, is I think we reference it at the very start of Bitcoin is Venice. I think it's in the introduction. Um, uh, oh, what's the title of it? Uh, nobody understands Bitcoin. And that's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's really excellent if people haven't read it. Um, I remember that when telling the story because I I make sure not to say because of all these influences, oh, I got it. Like that was, you know, I just immediately appreciated why it was amazing. That's absolutely not the case. But I think it is important that I didn't dismiss it because I think almost everybody dismisses it at first. And I did not dismiss it. I I was open to it. It took a lot longer to get anything like a reasonable understanding of it, but was very lucky to be in that position. I always find it funny when people in the say the Twitterverse say, oh, you don't understand Bitcoin. <laughs> I always find that like a uh, a really arrogant statement. Um because like I think James had it right. Yeah, like, yeah, how yeah. can you understand it when the things we're talking about today we weren't talking about two years ago mm. and two years previous and yeah, it's it is like this organic beast that yeah. Presents or presents new ways of thinking about certain things in the world. I mean, I think the mining industry now, what's happened over the last four years, is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's completely changing the energy markets. Mm-hmm. Some of that's still to be proven, but um, so how how do you come to understand Bitcoin? Do you just see it as like a stroke of luck? We've got this thing. Let's see what it is. Or do you have a pretty clear view now for yourself? Hmm. Well, I think I really take that. Jameson article to heart. I, I think why that hits home for me is that it, I think this is what you're getting at. But cut me off if I'm going off in completely the wrong direction. Um, is that I've I figure that it's worth focusing if you know if you're going to be involved full time, which I am now. It's worth not wasting your time attempting to understand every single thing about it and like thinking about where you can specifically make a difference, I guess. Um, and one of the things I remember we, we were chatting about this a while ago. Um, I was assuming you were going to bring it up at some point that the, the framing that I actually quite like for myself is that I don't even really like Bitcoin that much. I just hate fiat. Yeah, <laughs> and so that's kind of the lens that I approach it with. Um, I think a lot of my Twitter activity is probably better understood in that light too. That I don't actually really say that much about Bitcoin. It's mainly just making fun of 
fiat economists and fiat happenings. And so in my to, to maybe a little bit more directly answer the question, in my mind, it's the life raft for that horrible mess. So it, it, first and foremost, w- when you say that, it makes me think of the Churchill quote, like the democracy is the worst form of government <laughs> apart from everything else. It's like, you're not hero worshiping Bitcoin. It's just the other options are shit. <laughs> I don't think that's a good quote to compare it to because I think the the intended humor there at least is to come back to people who are saying they don't like, like I do like Bitcoin. It, it's not that I, I, I'm, this is more about my interests and my attention and my expertise to some extent too. And that, that feeds into the, the, okay. the Jameson article as well. Like I don't remotely consider myself an expert in much at all about Bitcoin. I can't really think of an area of Bitcoin specifically without reference to broader finance or economics where I would put myself forward as an expert. Um, whereas making fun of fiat, I think I'm pretty good at. So what, what is this hatred of fiat? That's pretty expansive. <laughs> but let's get, we got time. I got a whole bottle of wine there. Oh, I don't mind the time. I just mind where, where you want me to start with this. Well, I think a good point to start would be, I always, I always, with something like this, I would always like if somebody was listening for the first time mm-hmm. and rather than explain to why Bitcoin is so great, you're ex- trying to help them understand what is problem with the problem with fear because okay. yeah, up until yeah. now, na- up until four, no, six years ago, well, I didn't even know the word fiat existed. Mm-hmm. I had pounds and I would buy stuff mm-hmm. and I would give them some notes and get some notes and coins back or I'd tap a card and I'd get paid at the end of the month. You know, what would I have left? And I'd pay my more. It was just this system that I'd grown up knowing since I was a kid, since I was first I got I can even shops. challenge you on that. You okay. were an adult during the financial crisis. Yes, but I think, I, I think the point you're missing is I, I didn't, there was no world where I thought there was an oh, alternative. Oh, I, no, no, I get that you didn't have, you know, a framework to, yeah, to there was place a, these concerns. Yeah, but no, what but I'm you were concerned. That's, that's what I'm I mean, getting during at. During the financial crisis, I was like, okay, there's a financial crisis. But I went through that. I, I, I didn't lose my job. I didn't lose my house. Mm-hmm. I was never going to lose my job or house. I worked in a secure... Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, is that there was a financial crisis... I didn't even th- spend any time looking at it in detail to think, wow, what went wrong mm-hmm. here? It's just, okay, there was a financial crisis. I know there's been financial crisis before. I know there's periods when my parents struggled, but I, I never really looked at it and I never knew there was an alternative. There is an alternative now and mm-hmm. some, t- some people are aware there's an alternative and they might be listened for the first time. And I think a lot of people just think the only way is fiat. There's pounds and they mm-hmm. get paid at the end of the month and they live on that through the month and maybe they save some or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, when you explain inflation to people, I don't, I think they think inflation is just something that happens where things get more expensive. They don't know why it happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you can talk through the fuckery of fiat that you particularly <laughs> dislike, good in a way, for a book. the fuckery of fiat, <laughs> in, into a way that you're, trying to explain to them like this this is this this is an inherent problem with fear yeah okay sure i mean i can i can try to come up with ways i do want to almost preface this though by saying that i'm wary of 
even the idea that there is a, a kind of a silver bullet explanation to this. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I'm going to say that's going to make a 30 second soundbite that will convince somebody. It's a long form podcast. Of, I think this is actually related, by the way, to why nobody understands Bitcoin. That what Bitcoin <laughs> fixes, if you like that meme, I, I very much like that meme. I know some people don't. What Bitcoin fixes is so complicated and widespread and interconnected it's essentially impossible for a single person to understand and arguably all of those the it has the opportunity to do that in the first place because of fiat fuckery (laughs) so fiat fuckery is likewise impossible to fully understand and is as complicated a topic and i think people need to the reason i'm saying all of this is that i don't want to disillusion people that there's just a there's a simple concise you know like i said nice sound bite that will make it all click into place there isn't it's extremely complicated it will take you a long time to fully well you probably won't ever fully grasp that was kind of the point i was making a minute ago to start to grasp, to, re- to, to feel like you're at least on the right track. I, it's, I think it's important to kind of get that out of the way. I can try now, though. Uh, well, maybe what, like a starting point is just something that might, you know, at least get people's attention. It's just deeply unfair. It's, it's unjust. It's an extremely complex and convoluted form of theft that relies on its complexity to go largely unnoticed. I think this is even relevant to why it's hard to understand and why most people haven't even thought about it, that if they do start to think about it, they immediately come up against a wall of nonsense, jargon, and like obscurantism that the purpose of which is to stop them thinking about it. We make this point in the book, and Danny can probably quote it, right? This is this is early on. This is in chapter I two, I, I want to say. Um, early on in chapter two, where at that point we're talking about, we're just getting into, there's, Bitcoin's nowhere on the horizon, doesn't get mentioned for a few more chapters. We're talking about fiat fuckery, basically. We don't call it that. It's, I think the language is pretty polite. This show is brought to you by Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy and always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is Ledin a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security, and it's the best way for you to own and secure your private keys. If you are still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time for you to take your Bitcoin security a little more seriously, because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way for you to start managing your private keys. 
You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. And Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us, so they're a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with Iris Energy on everything from the podcast to films to live events, and they're even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. So we're really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin mining company. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. You kind of want to rename it now, don't you? I kind of want to write another one. <laughs> the fuckery of fear. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe the second edition can have an, an extra chapter. But how, how much of this is malevolence and how much of it is just the incentives of the system? Because if you, if mm, you, if you look at the question, issues, yeah. of, if you look at the issues of fiat, it is, it's every country. Yeah. Every country yeah. has the same. And, it, you know, at different levels. And to me, it seems the, the degree of feared fuckery that happens from country to country is largely dictated by either, I think, how strong inst- the institutions are, are within that country mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how, yeah, largely that. You tend to find the highest inflation numbers, the biggest theft, say, by government tend to be in the more kind of authoritarian mm-hmm. or smaller, less developed countries where there's a bit more corruption and places that have a bit or kind of stronger institutions, stronger levels of democracy, the West, it doesn't seem to be as bad right now. That's how I'm going to preface it. So a lot of, you know, we, me and Danny were talking about, was it chapter two where it was, comes down to, there's like the fiat fuckery from capitalism, but there's also the government interference. Was I that chapter two? I don't think it's chapter two, but I don't know the one you Yeah, mean. and I said the area I'm most interested in is the government interference. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm in, I'm interested on in what your views are on. There's clearly people exploit a system and directly mm. steal, but part of it is also I think there's this political cycle, which forces governments to do things that fuck with the fiat, mm-hmm. but because they're almost required to do it as yeah, to keep the wheels turning of mm. this broken system. So. I'm not that interested in the more extreme examples, not because they're not important, but I think they actually, they're important in the wider scheme of things. They're mm-hmm. extremely important to the people who suffer because of them. But in the course of the point I'm trying to make, I think they're actually distractions because they allow the perpetrators, if you like, in the less extreme versions to point the finger and say, well, at least we're not like that. You know, at least we don't have hyperinflation, at least we have a democratic mandate, what, whatever else, which I think is... And I'm with you on that, I by think, the way, because I think if you can point to it in you know, strong democracies with strong institutions, 
it's more obvious that it can't work anywhere. Yes. Well, that's part of it. I think there's two sides to this. So there's that's probably the end point, if you like, that it, this really just doesn't work. It's, just, it's a completely systemic issue, if you want to think of it that way. Um, I did want to draw attention, though, to the idea that exactly that kind of hand-waving red herrings, I think, is a perfect example of exactly what I was describing in terms of the jargon and the obscurantism, that if people start to look into this, they're one of the things they're met with, you know, in, on, on the one hand, you have all the like cargo cult science, which I'm, we can maybe get into separately. Um, but you also have more emotive propaganda around, oh, the central bank is independent. We don't interfere with it politically here like they do in X other place that kind of thing. And oh yeah, inflation's low. Like inflation here is only 2% or 10% or, you know, don't think too much about how we define inflation and all that kind of thing. Like these are yet more obstructions to actually understanding the, the core issue. So yes, obviously places with more openly corrupt governments, more directly stealing, more disastrously hyperinflating. Obviously, that is worse. I don't mean to diminish that. Um, but in all seriousness, it doesn't interest me as much. Well, let's talk about what does interest you then. <laughs> like in these, what it, you know, I can understand why fiat came to exist. Mm -hmm. It kind of makes yeah. sense. Oh, so can I. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. You know, receipts for gold. And I think, I, I think it's helpful if you're if you're thinking through the process the historical process you can infer basically as much malevolence as you want i think it's helpful not to because in in many ways i think that's also kind of a red herring like the system we've ended up with now is not run by people who are you know intrinsically evil and cackle on their way to work and you know they're not like scrooge mcducks right it's this is a similar kind of line of thinking that it's if you focus on that kind of thing or if you even infer that that kind of thing exists which i'm not completely convinced it does you ignore the systemic issues so this question of okay well how did it come about and you know you mentioning that you can see why it came about i think it's a lot healthier to discuss that in more i don't know what would you even call it mechanical terms um just to, sorry, I interrupted you there, but I think that's no, an no. important clarification yeah, to make. Yeah, I mean, there's a logic to, to, to the evolution of money, yeah. for, you know, from you know, why we went from gold to receipts for gold, mm -hmm. and those receipts for gold becoming, you know, uh, the notes that we use, and you can understand, I can even understand why governments decided to bring in central banks. Uh, governments themselves are a bureaucracy, and a bureaucracy is by design grow. They're a they're a beast that continues to grow and it continues to think it has to do interfere with all parts of our lives. And so if you have bank failures, oh, well let's stop bank failures. Let's yeah, have central yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. yeah. So let's have central banks, stop runs on the banks. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have a central bank. And yeah, you know, let's have FDIC programs. Let's have, you know, whatever the equivalent we have in the UK. And all these things make sense, but it is just this ever growing beast that's trying to protect us from 
Yeah, it's, it, it's almost like who is it? Dan Taub has said governments essentially become insurance providers for anything. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is just a couple of weeks ago, right? Well, it's the previous one. I think he did. Yeah, we recorded that. two, so that would have yeah. been in sort of September time, I think, last year. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that one. Yeah. And well, he mentioned it again on yeah, the most recent one. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he just said, look, essentially since World War II, we've become insurance providers and governments are trying to do everything they can to ensure the system and the individuals mm-hmm. are protected in every scenario and trying to make things fairer. But it, the way they do things, actually, they kind of make things unfair mm-hmm. because of the incentives of the system. But but I, like I said, I can understand every step that, that's been taken to bring us where we are. And I think at some point in the future, there'll be this history of time and there'll be the gold era and then the fiat era and then the Bitcoin. I, I get all mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's good to understand why fiat has failed. Like what is yeah. what are the inherent yeah. like you said systemic issues that mean it can't work mm-hmm. in a fair way? Oh, I can tie this really nicely to the book, but in like a probably hilariously cryptic way that you're going to have to unpack. Okay, it forces you to misprice capital. That's the that is the worst. There there are other issues. There are I'd say there's probably a close second would be it it manipulates people's time preference artificially and that has other knock-on effects which we also talk about in the book just much later on in a slightly different context um but i think by far the worst issue is that it incentivizes if not causes mandates to some extent that capital is misallocated that's what um, Stephen Lubka talked to us about, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, he loves this. Well, <laughs> he, he you know, talked about zero percent interest rates in that. Yeah. Yeah, it misprices capital or negative interest rates. That's yeah. I'm still never going to be able to get my head around that. Well, I mean, there's, quite, I, there's like a fairly easy way of explaining why that's stupid. Like why it's just mind-blowingly stupid. You're as a recipient of a negative interest rate loan, let's say, or, or really just any form of financing you are being paid to destroy value. Yes. You can profit whilst making a loss. And that's, that's as clear, uh, you know, if you want a, if you want a kind of a, a more mechanical, I appreciate that, you know, me saying things like, oh, misallocate capital to a lot of people, that would just be jargon. That doesn't mean anything to them. But that's, a, that's an example. Well, that's, I think it's a prime example of something definitely broken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's talk about this mispricing of capital. What, mm-hmm. why, what are the systemic issues with fiat that causes capital to be mispriced? Essentially that capital itself is scarce. All real goods and time is scarce. And fiat money is not. And any money, fiat or otherwise, gold, Bitcoin, whatever, is not itself wealth. It's claims on wealth. And so if you can, as is, not only as happens, but as kind of the point of fiat, create more claims on wealth at no cost whatsoever, then you are going to trick people into thinking there is a lot more wealth than there really is because they only see the claims and they have no way of knowing that they're essentially fraudulent. And 
acting essentially foolishly, I guess. You're making, this is obviously linked to the uh, the point about time preference too, making decisions that do not line up with the state of economic reality and then the kind of the fancier, more jargony way of framing that as saying misallocating capital. That, that I, Even that, I could just probably dig into that just a little bit more. What that really means is making plans around basically businesses. That's kind of an oversimplification, but it's maybe good enough for now. Making plans about businesses that assume prices of both the supplies for that business and the products of that business that are in no, even if they're accurate now, they may not be accurate now at all, but even if they are accurate now, they're in no way sustainable. So it's encouraging people to put time and effort into enterprises that will not last in the long run. That's that's capital misallocation. That's probably a decently concise explanation. And can you give me real world examples? The, the exact problem is that you can't know in the moment. Like this is this is why it's kind of a tricky, almost elusive concept that the problem itself is people acting as if this information they they're getting from the market is true, is accurate. And there's not really any way of adjusting for that. You, you you can't, you know, look at prices as they are now and perform, a, you know, a fiat adjustment. I don't know, like, oh, well, what would these prices really be if, if you know, if and when we get the banking collapse that's due and then I'll build that business instead? Like, that just doesn't make any sense. So okay, it's a really interesting question, but I actually think that precisely why you can't answer it is almost the point of what the problem is here. Well, so as, as a as a more direct example of something that I've I've been kind of intrigued by as a, as a like an example, like Twitter was bought by Elon Musk for forty four billion. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to pay back interest. I think about a billion a year. Mm-hmm. I can't exactly remember what their revenue. Their I have no idea. Revenue mm-hmm. is, but I was thinking it through, and I was looking at the share price. A lot of people have got <laughs> fabulously wealthy off Twitter, mm-hmm. way beyond any amount of actual revenue it's generated. About three billion. So about three billion is its revenue. Mm-hmm. How much profit? Because that's that's the money that should be distributed <laughs> to people. I mean, revenue can uh, pay wages, but but it feels like there's companies in the tech sector that have generated way more money for investors than yes. have ever yeah. been generated or may ever be generated. Okay, sure, that's that's a good example. So there's a slight tweak in that answer, which I think makes it a lot easier to address, which is that I got a bit nervous when you said Twitter specifically because I was getting prepared to be like, I know absolutely nothing about them. And you know, even if I did, who am I to say kind of thing. But there's, there's always a component of that too, right? Yeah. That you're. this is kind of the magic of markets in the first place that... You should always be saying, "Who am I to say?" You know, you unless you're putting yourself forward as the central planner of the price of capital, which is kind of that's what a central bank is, and that's why we're in this problem in the first place. But the tweak that you made there, which I liked, and I think opens up a, a really fruitful avenue for discussion, is uh, just moving away from a single company and looking at, if not an industry, an entire 
pattern of capital allocation. You mentioned the tech sector. I'd, I'd maybe even go a bit broader than that. You could stretch that to uh, most US-based venture capital since the financial crisis. Yeah, that's fair. And this actually links, interestingly, to what you're asking about my previous employer, because there's a few steps involved to get there, but I'll go over them hopefully pretty quickly. If the pension funds who typically are the end clients of, of all of this, well, they're members or they, the real beneficiaries, but you know, as an institution, it's, it's, it tends to be pension funds. Um, if the pension funds are increasingly having to think about, for example, inflation, uh, what that means for them is that their liabilities in the future are growing. Typically, there's there's kind of mechanics of exactly how pension funds work that's not worth getting into, but by and large, it means that their liabilities in the future are, are growing. It means they have to pay their to-be pensioners more, which makes sense, right? Because things are going to cost more when these people retire. If they're worried about that, uh, probably two things are going to happen at the same time. So one is that, or one of them may already be happening, but... Um, the one's already happening is that they're worried about inflation in the first place. Assume they're right, right? They're not just like paranoid. They're worried about inflation because of all this money printing. Uh, that's very likely manifesting at least first in financial markets and then eventually in regular goods that just because of the mechanism of how most, you know, quote unquote money printing works uh, or has worked in the past 20 years or so. So, the regular assets that they would be investing in have basically already taken on a kind of a monetary premium, right? Like they've become savings, but inflation still exists. It's still expected. It's actually, I mean, that is inflation and in, in, that is a version of inflation. And so in order to meet these increasingly dire liabilities, they need to go further and further out the risk spectrum. They need to start investing in things that are very probably more and more, you could just, if you're being super cynical, you just say stupid, right? Like bad investment ideas. Dogecoin. I guess a fair, well, no, Dogecoin <laughs> is just obvious. Like there's no <laughs> doubt about that. But, but this is what's dangerous though, because the, I think the fairer interpretation would be just that they're riskier or they're, they're more and more uncertain, right? They have lower and lower reasonable likelihoods of massively outsized payoffs. I mean, maybe at a certain point, yeah, you do in fact get to Dogecoin. I think for retail, it's probably exactly what's happened. That would have been the last, um, the last crypto bubble was exactly this playing out. But that entire process, first of all, it feeds on itself because when they do that, their, their, their only sane reaction to the prices of financial assets being monetized is to further monetize the prices of financial assets so that it, this problem just keeps causing itself. But then also to, that's one that I think most people are, are like reasonably aware of. I mean, especially now we've had this for like 15 years now and it's just gotten ludicrous. And you know, you gave Twitter as an example, there are far funnier examples of <laughs> absolutely insane venture investments that you know, hundreds of millions of dollars have been wasted on billions probably in some cases. 100 million into WorldCoin I've just seen this yeah, week, sure, which that's is a, so that's a good obviously too. going to fail. Yes, that's an excellent example. Uh, that is, ulti that's, that's pension funds chasing yield. I mean, it's going to be marketed as you know, innovation and all that shit, but it's, it's ultimately the cause of that is pension funds chasing yield. Um, the more interesting thing though 
to me at least. I think the more under the surface, more intangible, more difficult to to kind of get your hands on is what I don't want to say should they invest, should they have invested in, because that again implies that I know, but or maybe what would they have invested in? If capital had been priced properly, what actually productive things would they have done? And so this is what's an example of capital misallocation. All of this is an example of capital misallocation. Because there's an opportunity cost to this. It's, you know, you can laugh at hundred million dollars for WorldCoin, but that's a hundred million dollars that actual businesses won't, you know, businesses that could conceivably have done something useful and generated a return won't get. And then just to bring it completely full circle, the more real scarce capital is destroyed in that way, the the worse inflation is ultimately going to get because it will inevitably cost more to make stuff that people actually want because there's fewer resources going towards it. The resources are all being mm. directed towards complete nonsense. And that's fiat. Yeah. <laughs> it's fiat fuckery. And so how did we get there? And it, it was it inevitable? That's, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think yes, but I'm completely open to other takes on this because I think it's quite a complicated answer. Because I feel um, like, I've talked about this on the podcast before, um, my rudimentary understanding of the economy growing up was that and I did economics A level and got a got a C, uh, but there was always surpluses and deficits. I was fully aware that governments would sometimes mm. run a surplus and sometimes run a deficit, and that's that's just the way it was. And um, you know, there were tough times and there were good times. I feel like we are in an era of post surplus. That is gone. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. I mean, you uh, might have yeah, a trade yeah, probably, surplus, yeah. but but. I think we're in a period of permanent government just, debt. Just to, to be clear, though, so you've mentioned this a few times now, and I, I don't disagree that that's... So this is more what Dan was talking about, right? This yeah. is like just everything. They have to ensure absolutely everything. I don't see this as being so much a political issue. I think the political issue is just layered on top of an even worse problem. Um, I, I think it's an economic issue or a finance issue, if you like. Like This is a problem with how money works at the level of banks, in my mind. And that's actually key to my answer to this, was this mm. inevitable? But governments position themselves as the regulator of the banks, mm -hmm. and they allow, disallow certain things. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's... Oh, no, that is also relevant. Yeah. Definitely. There's, there's yeah. an issue with both. But, but I, I think it only makes it worse. It can't make it better. It can at best do nothing. I believe there's a rule set that can be created for a government to operate within a budget. And a oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But they're never going to do it because the political cycle is out of kilt with the economic cycle. And yes. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. But I think what I'm getting at is that I see that as being... I guess a related issue, but essentially a distinct issue to how fiat money actually works. Mm. And it's not, I think even this is potentially something that you could easily get distracted by and think maybe we can fix this politically. My whole point is you, you can't, you absolutely cannot. This is completely systemic to how money works, how fiat money works. Politics can only make it worse. It can at best have no effect. It cannot make it better. Okay. Why? Hmm. 
do you want me to go back to was it inevitable? Because I think yes. the answer would be easier. Yes. Okay, so the reason I think it was inevitable was... <laughs> um, I'm, I'm all right, I guess. Uh, well, you, you're, do, I'm, you're doing most of the talking. The reason I think it was inevitable is a, is a little complex. I think it's a little historically involved. And it's essentially that gold... It, to a very small extent, silver as well, but you can probably just focus on gold. Um, gold is very good money in some ways and very bad money in other ways. And I think the, the simplest version of this, I'll give you a really brief version, then we can go into a lot more detail if you want to. Um, but the simplest version is that gold is very bad for increasingly complicated commerce. And I think mm-hmm. commerce basically got so complicated that gold no longer suited it well before the kind of periods Bitcoiners usually talk about and are usually angry about. But I think that's because there was a lag while the form the money took uh, remained reasonably effective for a while until basically people caught up with the shenanigans that they could get away with. Do, do, do you know what, just interject, one thing I don't know about the, about the time when people used gold for commerce, mm-hmm. were, did they have like uh, a, a bag of nuggets of different sizes and they would say, I want to sell you this horse, I want those three nuggets there. <laughs> like I don't know how it was done without coins. Why does it matter how it's done without coins? I only had coins in mind, to be honest. It's just, I'm just intrigued by it. Because, no, go on anyway, forget that. (laughs) Maybe we go back to that. Um, So I think we, the very short version, in my mind, of why we ended up here is that there was insufficient foresight as to how bad it would be to move away from gold in pursuit of commercial utility. And by the time anybody did actually realize it was too late because there was also political capture. But I think my sort of mildly, I don't want to pat myself on the back too much, but I just, I genuinely think I have a slightly different view on this, at least from, you know, Bitcoin Twitter. Um, I Be- think better. The, the, <laughs> I mean, it more, might be wrong. So more, more intelligent. <laughs> um, I think the I think you can trace the problem back earlier. I basically don't think gold is all it's cracked up to be. If anything, you could actually see this as being even more bullish on Bitcoin. That gold was all in my view, gold was always doomed to fail because it was always going to be uh, first of all moved away from actual specie to fiduciary media, and basically once you've done that with gold the game's kind of over, even if it takes literally hundreds of years to then get to where we are now because of the ways in which it is worse as money. That part of it, Bitcoiners completely understand because then you're into, you know, on the one hand, central banks emerging in the first place in order to be effective clearing houses of this because it's very expensive to move. Once you have not even central banks, but few enough commercial banks performing this service, you they get 6102'd and then all the gold goes away and then you just yank the reserve entirely and now we have fiat, which means nothing. That's I sped that up a little bit, but so that's... It's, <laughs> it's because gold moves very well through time, but not through space, basically. Yes. Yeah. It was moved away from in the first place 
because it could not move fast enough to keep up with commerce. Yeah. I think this, so this is, I can tease this out a little bit more to make the bullishness on Bitcoin even more apparent and more kind of obvious that money, any, whatever the money is, it's essentially information. I don't mean this to be too kind of like mystical or metaphorical no, 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 or anything. That, that makes it's just, sense. It's, the way it functions is essentially as information. And if people are able to trade in ways that rely on moving information faster than the actual, you know, physical manifestation of that information, then you get a, a tension. And that tension, I think, is why we moved away from actually using gold. That should, if you believe that, you, it's perfectly reasonable to disagree with any of that. But if you believe it, that should make you far, far more excited about Bitcoin because it has all of these properties of gold that make it good as money that is extremely scarce, basically. That's by far the most important one. It's extremely scarce, very easy to verify. Um, but because it's also completely digital, it lacks, it entirely lacks this problem of being difficult to move and being difficult to keep up with commerce. If anything, it's far easier to move than almost anything people actually ever trade. And so is far more, it's maybe a bit early to say this too definitively, but it has the potential to be far more robustly decentralized. None of that's contrary. Like every Bitcoiner understands that. I think my interesting take is going further, basically being even more bearish on gold than most Bitcoiners are. So I think that's that's how we got here. To get back to your question, gold is not very good as money either for even mildly sophisticated commerce or, and usually just both, uh, the potential for political attacks. It's very easy to politically attack gold. And it's very easy for people to not even mind that so much because it's not serving their needs as money in the first place because their commerce is a lot more uh, sophisticated than it can serve. But none of this applies to Bitcoin. And do you think fiat uh, mainly has mainly been exposed due to one, central banks, and two, we live in an age of being able to... I can buy I can buy something from mm. somebody in Nairobi and I can pay them and I can get that shipped to me. We're living this rather than me going to the guy next door and buying his horse from me. Like we've had this more complex commerce environment that requires mm -hmm. this. Do you think do you think uh that is the reason that Fiat failed if we hadn't have had technology, information superhighways? No, it would I, have I, I don't think so at all. I actually think I quite strongly disagree with that. I'll tell you well, why can, I think can, Fiat can, failed can, in a minute. Well, I think back to your... your <laughs> yeah. yeah. And think technology has allowed mm -hmm. this. This is the creation of these products. Is, oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah. yeah the, in that, you know, the ability to just move any amount of money through centralized database mm -hmm. like that is you can create these exotic products and mm -hmm. this refinancialization of everything and derivatives mm -hmm. of everything has just made these multiple claims on thin air. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that, that's very interesting. That's not at all what I thought you were getting at. Yeah. Um, Whereas you wouldn't have had that so much in an era of sure. no information technology. But also I, the information technology uh, conversely yeah. has then made what Bitcoin was. I still... I, I think I still disagree. I think okay. it's I think it's necessary 
make sure I get this the right way around. I think it's necessary, but woefully insufficient. I think the only reason that anybody engages with that kind of financialized nonsense, even if it's enabled by a smartphone, is that they're chasing yield, basically. Again, it's it's basically the same problem that the pension fund has when they invest in WorldCoin. It's that they are aware of the reality of inflation and they need to invest in more and more ridiculous things with smaller and smaller chances of massive payoffs. I think that's okay. basically the same reason that somebody would do a whatever, some like weird derivative they don't understand because they can do it on Robinhood or something like that. These kinds of financial instruments have existed for a very, very long time. I get your point that it's it's compounds it then. Yeah, it, it's they're far more accessible now, yeah, okay, obviously, yeah. than they've ever been before. But that doesn't mean people should have any reason to use them. Okay, they let, use them because of fiat. <laughs> okay, let me put it in a different way. If we were to to flip it and look at why this doesn't happen with Bitcoin or why Bitcoin. Mm-hmm limits this. Uh, Parker Lewis, um, you you know Parker, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite people in Bitcoin, he says to me, he said to me multiple times, the most important thing about Bitcoin is the 21 million. And not the number, it could be Mm -hmm. any number, but everything about Bitcoin comes from the fact that there is a fixed limit. There is 21 million and every benefit of Bitcoin is derived from that. If you didn't have that, then you don't have Bitcoin. And so so I try and think of all the things we've discussed here that are broken mm. and think, what are the most important characteristics, characteristics of Bitcoin that stop that? It is, it is the 21 million, mm-hmm. the self-custody, mm-hmm. and that you can move it yeah. anywhere to yeah. anyone at, at the speed of either a 10-minute block or the speed of a lightning transaction without anyone being able to stop it happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it like, is it those three, are they the three pillars? No, I think I agree with Parker. I, I just leave it at one. I wouldn't I would leave add, it at one. add the other three. Yeah, because the other two don't matter if you don't, if it's not, if it's not signed. I mean, every shitcoin has the other two. Who cares? But but you still have to have these other two. And they are still oh, kind I see of, what you mean. Yeah, they still um, are kind of un- unique in, you, uh, you can you be sovereign yeah, with dollars? Yeah. Well, you can keep them under your couch, but you can't send them at the speed of light. Okay, you can. Can you be uh, sovereign you, with dollars? I, I mean, I don't think so. Well, no. I can keep my I can keep my dollars under. Well, people in Argentina are sovereign with dollars because they they're, keep them under the mattress. They're more sovereign, but I mean, this might be a tangent you don't quite want to go into right now. But I, I mean, I dispute that they even really own anything. They own a bank liability. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like they yeah. can still get rugged. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Prices of Bitcoin can still collapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Things can happen, but maybe that actually, sorry, maybe that is a worthwhile distinction though, right? Because you, I'm not sure exactly what a good example to tease this out. I mean, other than Bitcoin itself, good example to tease this out would be, but you could in theory have something that is perfectly sound as a monetary candidate, but which for whatever weird technical reason you, you can't actually own yourself. So maybe, yeah. I'm I'm just saying, what what are the components that make this work? What are the 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 must-haves, the ability mm-hmm. to move anywhere in the world, censorship resistant, yeah. at the speed of light or ten-minute yeah. block, great. I can do trade with anyone in the in the world. I am self-sovereign, so I don't rely on a bank, which I have my risk. And there's twenty-one million. Uh, is is that are they like the fundamental pillars of 
the money we need right now that fix every problem that we have with fiat. <laughs> just fix By the way, I've got everything. Everything. Um, or, or is it? Is it not? Is it less? I think it probably is. I hesitate to to give too definitive an answer no, on this because so, <laughs> this is basically how do you fix the world? <laughs> Are these three things enough? Um, I mean, they're the combination of them, which we know we have with Bitcoin, is clearly better than fiat or gold, which are the only other options, really. So but it's say, the 21 million that fixes the systemic issue of inflation, real inflation, which is the real cancer of all of this. Yeah, it, it, just to be completely clear on that, though, if what you mean by 21 million, I know the number itself doesn't really matter, but it just in terms of what it actually gives you, it's the inability to print it. Which, That's what matters. And the print has all the second, third, fourth, fifth order effects throughout yes. the economy, yeah, yeah. which leads to yeah, theft. That's a good, that's a, uh, helpful actually to put a lot of this in, in, in more context because one thing that I think can put people off from this discussion quite a bit is thinking that Bitcoiners are saying and only saying that fiat is like terrible as money which I think it is important to roll back on a little bit. There are many ways in which fiat works really well. Mm. It's excellent for payments, for most payments. It gets tricky if you're going across different currencies and like different jurisdictions and so on. But we've got to a point now, I mean, especially with, basically with integration with the internet, especially, and also smartphones too, most payments are very slick. Even if it's not consumer stuff, like business-to-business payments between banks are very cheap. Like they work really, really well. Um, so it's not saying that absolutely everything is bad about it, but it is saying that the lack of soundness and the ability for some people to make it costlessly has all the second, third, fourth, etc. order effects, and they are what has fucked everything. <laughs> that one of them is capital misallocation, for example. One of them is screwing with people's time preference. Basically, everything we've talked about up until now are those second and third order effects, even though the first order effects of can you buy stuff are like, oh yeah, okay, that works pretty well. This show is brought to you by Unchained. Now, events at exchanges and traditional banks over the last year have been an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But listen, I know for some of you, this can be daunting, which is why our friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I've personally been through the process and have now set up the vaults for my football team, Rail Bedford. And okay, I've got a personal recommendation here. The multi-sig solution which Unchained have created is so easy to use. They also ship you the required devices and walk you through this step-by-step step so you understand exactly how the vaults work. After you set up, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. Now, if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchained's concierge onboarding is a simple way to get started. So book your onboarding today at unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code what Bitcoin did. Next up today, we have Wasabi who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way for you to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and it provides privacy by default. With Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. 
and Wasabi users make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up today, we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and they not only have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out. And with their 24-7 live chat support, you can always get help if needed. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also today, we have the Human Trafficking Institute. Now, according to the International Labour Organization, there are approximately 49.6 million human trafficking victims in the world today. And in May last year, I spoke to Victor Boutris from the Human Trafficking Institute, which has a unique and proven model I want to tell you about. Now, the Human Trafficking Institute exists to decimate modern-day slavery at its source by empowering police and prosecutors to stop traffickers. They work inside criminal justice systems in Uganda and Belize and provide the embedded experts with world-class training, investigative resources and evidence-based research necessary to free victims. Since the Human Trafficking Institute began their work in Uganda and Belize, they've helped their partners to free over 2,300 victims of trafficking and arrest over 1,500 suspected traffickers. In Uganda, there was a 417% increase in successful prosecutions of human traffickers within the first two years of their work there. Now, the work they do is incredible, and it's something I want to get behind as a support, so I want to tell you about it today, and hopefully you can support it too. I've given them a Bitcoin. Hopefully you can make a donation too, because Bitcoiners have the potential to make an incredible impact by donating to them. So please do visit traffickinginstitute.org forward slash Bitcoin to learn more about what they do and help fight against human trafficking. Yeah, and that goes back to your original point of fairness. Yeah. Yeah. so, So it is the... Because... If there was no other form of money apart from Bitcoin, we wouldn't be worrying about some of those issues with Bitcoin, like the price fluctuates, because there's only one form of money, so Mm -hmm. it's not going to die, so there's less risk. And we wouldn't have inflation, so everybody would be on the same, playing by the same rule set as such, Mm -hmm. which would be fair. Actually, it makes me... This is really making me think of that American HODL conversation. I mean, where he, he talked talk, a lot about this. Yeah, he talked about money is really a proxy for time. Yeah. And yeah. so when you say that in the book, Danny yeah. can tell you where. <clears throat> Maybe he stole it from you. I actually can't tell you where. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say chapter four. I think that sounds right. But is in that money is a proxy for time. Mm-hmm. And when you steal money, you're stealing time. And, yeah. and when he first said that to me, I was like, huh. Yeah, I know I understand that because I've always said this. There's only two scarce assets that matter in the world. One is Bitcoin, one is time, and I'm 44. Mm-hmm. I'm at that age now where you're starting to think about time. Like in kind of profound ways. You're starting to think about, well, you know, I was reading the paper the other day. I got a heart attack at 48. I mean, that's four years. That's not long. Mm-hmm. You start to think about time a lot, and you think about it a lot more the older you get yeah. because it's a, a dec- decreasing... 
you, you've got mm. a decreasing amount of time, but you don't know what, what the end number liquid is. Liquid time's drying up. Well, <laughs> yeah, your liquid time's drying <laughs> up, but you don't know if it's a year <laughs> yeah. or 10 years. But, yeah. and so like, I think to Steve Jobs, he was like the richest guy in the world or top three at the time. He had cancer. No amount of money could buy him yeah. any more time. Yeah. There, there's a saying, it stuck with me so hard. Somebody said to me once, or I've read it once that said, an inch of time is worth an inch of gold, but you cannot buy an inch of time with an inch of gold. Oh, that's good. Yeah, Isn't yeah. it? And it made me think, huh, time is really valuable, yep. but it doesn't matter how rich you are, you can't buy any more. And I think th I think there's a crossover. The younger you are, you think of money, and the older you are, mm -hmm. you think of time. Mm -hmm. And there's like mm -hmm. this crossover. So when American Hoddle said to me, money is a proxy for time, and when people are stealing your money, they're stealing your time. You're right. I met a Venezuelan in Colombia. When I went to make, make a film in Venezuela, I went to Colombia, I met this guy who was a teacher, and he, he left Venezuela. He said... Almost overnight, my entire net wealth went to zero. Mm -hmm. And they stole all the time that he'd worked to create that wealth. And they stole the time from the future that mm -hmm. he had chosen to spend on what he wanted, but he couldn't do it because that money was gone. It really sticks yeah. with me. That do you remember before I was saying that you have these examples that are a lot more vivid where the governments are a lot more obviously corrupt and the inflation is a lot more striking, so on yeah. and so forth. Um, this is a great practical example of this. So again, obviously not to diminish that situation, but the exact same thing is happening here just in much slower motion. So yeah. everything you just described, right? Imagine somebody in that, well, not even like you, imagine it's you. You're, well, no, it can't be you because you have Bitcoin. Imagine it's someone who other than, you know, is your demographic, no, let's say, no. other than holding Bitcoin. I, I can give you a me example. Mm-hmm. Or was it like you five years ago? No, or something? no, I yeah. can give you a me example right now. A great me example right now. We had a good year last year. We worked really hard. We did mm -hmm. well. We made a profit, took a dividend. Dividend went into the bank. I have no need to spend that dividend now. Mm -hmm. And I'm, yes, I own Bitcoin, but I don't want to put every penny I have into Bitcoin. So I, I have pounds in my bank account right now. That is, like Sailor says, it's kind of a melting ice cube. Mm -hmm. And so, the work I've put in the previous years to get us to the point to have that dividend is now being stolen from me. Mm -hmm. And so that is stealing either time from me or time from Connor here or time from Scarlett yeah. in the future because that's money that could go to them for them yeah. to do things. Yeah. So it affects, it affects me. It, affects, it does. Yeah. Where I was going though, so <laughs> I, again, I'm not meaning to diminish that situation either, but I was heading to a specific point because I wanted to link it with something I said before, which is imagine you don't have Bitcoin. Okay. Um, Imagine that your your perception of the value of your future time is your pension fund. And they turn around to you one day and they're like, yeah, we actually don't have anything because we put it all into WorldCoin. <laughs> it's a bit extreme. That's not going to happen exactly that way. This happened to my father. Something. Well, okay, there you go. Something similar enough to it will happen, like literally will happen to everybody. I'm not meaning to be too alarmist, but some version of this is going to happen to everybody. My father worked for Monarch Airlines for nearly 40 years and saved into a pension. Mm -hmm. And prior to him retiring, I'm going to, I'm going to, I won't have the dates. Let's say, the decade before he retired and the decade after he retired, that pension had three haircuts. Hmm. Yeah. So before he retired, he knew the amount he would get was going to be less than he'd planned for. Yeah. Yeah. When he retired, it was less. And since then, there was another haircut. Mm -hmm. So 
everything he worked for for 40 years, he's told, you work hard, you put money into this, and this is the life you can have afterwards, took three haircuts. Yeah. They didn't take haircuts because he did something wrong. He took haircuts because other people did things wrong. Can you go into more detail on that? In, what, who, who did what wrong? Well, so, so the haircuts are either, and I can't tell you whether, either the misallocation of mm-hmm. that fund by the pension fund mm-hmm. or poor management of that company so they had to dip mm-hmm. into the pension fund. I don't know if they did. Mm-hmm. Or the pension fund wasn't able to perform because of government policy, which meant mm-hmm. they were chasing an ever higher number. I don't... I Yeah. What you know? Why? Well, no, I I don't know, but I think this is another really interesting example of something that's come up a few times now. Where I won't speak to that specific situation because I don't want it to seem like I know. But in situations like that, I I still think the way you're framing it now is letting the what I deem to be the real cause kind of off the hook. Because you're, I mean, you can come back to this, right? I'm not going to put words in your mouth. What's the real then? So I don't think, it may be the case that they were literally just raiding the pension fund, right? But I think it's it's unlikely that that there was actual fraud or actual malevolence involved. And maybe some incompetence, but even that I'm not sure. I think the real cause is, once again, how fiat works. I don't think they likely had much of a choice about this. Like, again, in the in the far more hypothetical example, the people who are putting $100 million into WorldCoin, they don't think that's a good idea. They just have no choice. Hmm. That, I think, is worth being angrier about than looking for fraud or looking yeah. for corruption. If it's Fine. there, obviously, you should be angry about that too. But this is why I'm saying that this is going to happen to everybody. What, yeah. It's not just going to happen to the people who happen to, you know, by some horrible coincidence, you know, their pension fund managers are corrupt. It's going to happen to everybody. Sorry, Dan. What do you mean they don't think it's a good idea? They're doing it because they're chasing yield. But they must think that they must analyze the risk and think. They think it's the least bad idea. They think. Um, okay, I can I can flesh it out a little bit more. Hold I, see, on, I can, see what you're getting at. Is so, this is this the guy at the casino who's uh, who's had a bad night and he goes all in black or red? Fuck <laughs> it. He it's, knows it's, it's a bad idea. It's a little different than that. It's more like, say he uh, come up with something reasonably realistic. Uh, he needs money for surgery, I, I guess. I don't know. That's the first thing that came to mind, like why you need loads and loads of money right away. Um, he needs money for surgery, and the only way, like he can't earn that. It's just not possible. He doesn't have enough time to earn it. The only way he can possibly get that money is putting it all on you know, Red 32. Like even red isn't enough. Like it needs to be red 32 specifically. That's pretty close to what I'm talking about. That they have such extreme liabilities caused by inflation that there is no other asset they can invest in that can possibly get them a good enough return. So it's not like they're saying, oh, equities are shit, bonds are shit, everything's shit, WorldCoin is where it's at. Mm. They're saying it's completely implausible that putting this in the S&P 500 or whatever. I see. Right? It's that bonds aren't going to cut it. The S&P is not going to cut it. Nothing's going to cut it given how dire their financial situation is. Yeah. They have to put it in WorldCoin. 
So obviously the entire pension market's fucked. Yes. Is it to the point where it's going to collapse? Or is no, it everyone is just going to get a worse and worse deal? I mean, yeah, yeah. Basically, everyone's going to progressively get a worse and worse deal. I think there's a couple... It depends It depends how much money is literally printed to keep it afloat. I think probably what happens is more like not all, but most of the financial assets that the pension plans hold will continue to be monetized to avoid a political disaster. That'll also depend where you're, where in the world you're actually talking about and what the political process is. Um the nominal value of those assets will go up to meet the liabilities, but the process of ensuring that will cause even more inflation that the recipients, the, the, the ultimate beneficiaries, the pensioners, will then have to deal with once the pension fund itself is like, you know, out the picture. They've, you know, hmm. that's probably what's going to happen. Yeah. I, I don't think it's really possible for pension funds to collapse. They don't really have that mechanic. No, they just those who rely on those pensions are... Just get a worse, worse deal, yeah. Yeah, worse, worse deal. Yeah. And that worse, worse deal is propped up by intervention, which has diminishing impact. Yeah. yeah, and also everybody else gets worse deal too because what this process is supposed to do is... Well, I mean, ideally they would, you know, they just have signed money and they wouldn't need to do any of this, right? They could actually save with money. Um but even if you give it the benefit of the doubt, it's supposed to allocate capital well. And so everyone suffers in the end because the ultimate, again, we don't need to go through this in too much detail. We've talked about it already. The, mm. the, the consequences that WorldCoin gets funded and real businesses don't. So no one does well out of this. It's I, Well, the only people who do well are, this is something we whine about quite extensively early on in the book, are... Cantillionaires, basically the 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 people who have who are closest to the money spigot to be a bit kind of rhetorical about it. So in the book, you say it's not who's close to money. Don't you call the financial markets the money spigot rather than say they're close to it? Yeah, we probably say something like that. I, I see where you you're need to getting. Read your own at. Book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I told you. I'm not, I, I admitted right at the start. I've not read it. It's a good, it's a good um, book. Danny was there. <laughs> Uh, so really, finance is simple, or it should be. You take capital from savers, you oh, pass it onto yeah, investment yeah. projects, you try not to lose it, you try to give back more. You don't get paid a lot for this because it's not that hard. Yeah. The end. So that was the yeah, interview. Yeah. We should have just said that. We could have <laughs> yeah. gone down the pub. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a whole other uh, slightly edgy thesis I have about all of this, that on a Bitcoin standard, the asset management industry will be, I mean, I just make the number up, obviously, but... 10% of its size, maybe much smaller than that. Most of it exists to solve the problem of inflation, but in attempting to solve it, it makes it worse. Can I throw in my curveball question at you? Or something I wrestle with? <laughs> Can I say no? <laughs> well, I guess. <laughs> okay. We'll keep you the fuck down. No, um, uh, so one thing I've tried to wrestle with with this is say, okay, look, I agree with everything you said. You're completely and utterly right. Uh, about this being theft on the individuals um, and it's a cancerous system that can't work. But has there been benefits to this in that has the money printer led to more money to be available 
for investment and therefore has that accelerated yeah that's a good question yeah has this accelerated innovation uh, and look there's going to be some people who think big farmers bad i get it majority of big farmer is bad <laughs> but ha- do we have more mri machines Mm-hmm. available in hospitals that are able to scan and look for cancers? Uh, do we have innovation yeah, yeah. in terms I, I see, of I see what you're getting at, yeah. um, immunotherapy that wouldn't have happened without this? Have we got... Uh, have we had inno- have we had all this innovation off the back of it that has lifted us up? Because the the other side is mm. is that we do have less people in poverty now than a certain period. Do we know for certain <clears throat> that without this system... Right, it might have been fairer, but the growth might have been slower, and generally we might have listed people out of poverty slower. Do do mm-hmm. we know the net impact? And like, and look, it's not that I'm a fan of it and supporting it. I'm just more it's intrigued worth to know steel manning it. Yeah. yeah, is it like is there a? Ch- you so know, I should come back to telling you off for using growth, the word growth. You misused it. Okay, that's a separate. I apologize, issue. but um, you understand. You this? haven't read chapter three. I haven't Come read on. chapters one to the last. <laughs> you know, what? I actually haven't. I'm trying to think. The last time I actually read a book, I've listened. I listened Should I answer while you're thinking about that? I listened to. I know. I listen to books. Oh, yeah. if they yeah, don't available. have an audio book, that's what you need. Yeah, uh, we do soon. Okay. I don't know when. I don't want to throw a guy to under the bus, but it's coming. Hurry up, guy. Um, Guy Swan, we love you. Um, I I don't read books anymore. I don't have the time to read books because I could. I listen. I can listen to a book while mm-hmm. doing shit. I can. That's I, fair. Yeah, I yeah. can listen to a book in a day. You, I could probably listen to yours in a day, and I'd find jobs to do mm-hmm. while I'm listening to it. Mm-hmm. I don't have the time to sit down and read. I don't have the time to sit and do fuck all. I don't have the time to not do stuff. <laughs> So, uh, audiobook would be very welcome. But um, you understand the sentiment of the yeah, question? Yeah, no, no, of course, of course. Uh, and it's a good question. It's, it's, this is an entirely worthwhile steel man, I think. Um, I think the answer is... We can't prove you it. You can't know, but almost certainly not. Not? And the, yeah, as in almost certainly things are not better because of this. We haven't made good investment decisions because of this and the reason is is it the concord analogy oh what's concord analogy i don't know that that we had massive innovation in air travel all the way up to about concord Mm -hmm. and that then the innovation in air travel slowed down and why did that happen well you can look at us coming off gold standard and yeah Hmm. the way capital was allocated changed a lot around that kind of period in time and I don't really know anything about Concord, unfortunately. Well, that was the last greatest innovation. <laughs> I, mean, I know what it is, but in, in air travel, uh-huh. we went supersonic in was it the seventies Concord? Seventies, yeah. Yeah, and then since then we we don't have Concord anymore. Mm-hmm. We don't have supersonic. Is it supersonic? Yeah, yeah. Supersonic but was that not down to like fuel prices and all sorts of stuff like that? I'm. We we haven't Didn't had that one innovation crash as well in Paris. One crashed in that. one crashed in Paris, but and and the interesting thing about that, Virgin tried to buy. Or the remaining planes, planes, and then would sell them. Mm. Um, but what I'm saying is, we haven't. The innovation we've had since then has been different. I mean, that that may fit. I just don't want to pretend to know yeah. much about aviation. Um, that may fit my answer. Uh, the reason it's almost certainly not the case is that it could be. There's maybe two sides to this. So one is that it could be the case entirely by accident. Like there could be a fluke that has sort of made it through. But 
even to explain that, it's I, I just I don't think it's intellectually coherent to be arguing for this on any grounds other than that you or at least somebody, it doesn't need to be you specifically, but somebody is smarter than everyone else combined. Okay. Because that's the product of a, of a, I mentioned this before, I forget in what context, but that's the product of a genuinely free market is, it's kind of democratic in some way. It, it aggregates everybody's revealed preferences, not just what they say they want, but what they actually want as determined by their actions. And so for you to suggest, for anybody, I don't mean you, but for anybody to suggest that the the product of interfering with, in this particular case, we're talking, I mean, this is true in any market, but we're talking about capital markets, right? Interfering with capital markets because you want to create better outcomes, basically, is the gist of the question. That could only happen if whoever is doing the interfering literally knows more than everybody else combined. And so that's why I think it's extremely unlikely. They, In fact, it's so overwhelmingly unlikely that it, I would say it's basically impossible except by fluke. Is so it the, kind of the broken window fallacy? I don't think so, but go, go on. Like, What do well, you think it, the, the idea of that obviously is? is that if someone breaks a window, does it boost the economy because you then have to hire a glazier to fix the window, but you don't know where the capital would have gone otherwise? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's obviously related in that sense, yeah, that there's... I think it sort of, it's very likely implicit in asking that question. I mean, you were kind of doing it as a devil's advocate, I suppose, but if you were putting it forward seriously, I think it would have to be implicit that you're not fully on top of the idea of there being an opportunity cost to that capital, mm -hmm. which is where a lot of this comes from, right? Just lack of awareness of opportunity costs, thinking like, oh, I want to fix this problem. And in doing so, there will be no bad consequences whatsoever. We'll just fix it, and then that'll be the end of that. Um, so, so you're saying there is a efficient market hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you don't stand for, but you um, kind of are. Oh, do you want me to go back to growth, by the way? Because yes. I can tie... Why is that a swear word? Yeah, exactly. Well, no, it's not. If you use it properly, it's great. Um, but you can tie in the broken window fallacy, which is what reminded me that I'd said that a few minutes ago. So this is a particular... This is like one of my almost favorite pet peeves of fiat ism fiatism um, yeah or fiat fuckery that i uh are I, we going to be calling this I, show I, fiat yeah, we probably I are yes. we are going to be calling um, i definitely get a kind of a perverse kick out of pointing this out like it shouldn't make me happy because it's it's not a sort of a sad topic but it's i just got like nerd out on it a bit that the way the word growth is used including the way you used it which is why i got pissy um in almost every discussion of economics or well macroeconomics or finance is subtly wrong in a way that on the face of it maybe doesn't matter that much it's kind of just semantics but it's worth exploring because the misunderstanding itself reveals uh it sheds a light on fiat fuckery right on on the on the other deeper misunderstandings that you have to have to take fiat seriously. So when most people say growth, what they really mean is 
a better word would just be increase. What they're talking about, they'll usually say like GDP growth. For example, I think that's what you meant before when you said it. No, um, yeah, I, I didn't think it through, but but I know GDP GDP growth is kind of like gaslighting because <laughs> it's not fucking real. Oh, exactly. This is what I'm. This is where I'm going. Like it, just it, more specific it, it, about it makes, why it's not it, real. It makes me think of like Einstein and relativity. <laughs> How? <laughs> well, because like you know, okay, you can have GDP growth. Mm-hmm. But you have to consider inflation in that. Oh, and sure. I mean, you just have real GDP growth, though. Like, that's easy to strip out. That's, that's not that. But, but they never give us real GDP growth. Well, because, yeah. because that means they but have I mean, to say But I mean, if you know the two is... numbers, it's not hard. Mm. All right, come on. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, they, people who say this should say increase because what they are talking about is the ratio of almost always one flow to another. I'll explain what I mean by that. So uh, GDP is a flow in the sense that it is an amount of, I'll just say dollars as like the unit, but fiat, whatever, money. Um, it's an amount of money over a period of time. That that should be fairly easy to appreciate. And so is, for example, that's more like a macroeconomics example, you want to talk about finance instead, so would revenue be. So people talk about revenue growth. Um, they're making the same mistake. Profit growth is at least a bit more helpful. You'll see why in a minute, but even that's wrong. In all of these cases, if you're just comparing GDP from year one to year zero or revenue or profit or whatever, that is a ratio of one flow to another. It would be better described as an increase. What growth actually is, is the ratio of a flow to the stock that generated it. In this, and so the, hmm. this no, idea yeah, of the concept I'm of stocks you. and flow are extremely important. So in this case, well, actually in all of the three examples I gave, the, the stock would be measured in dollars, right? Yeah. So with the economy, it's actually a little bit complicated because I'll go in the other order, actually, sorry. So with profit and revenue, the stock is the capital employed by the company. Mm-hmm. And this is where you get various financial metrics that people are comfortable with, like return on equity, things like that. Um, with the economy, it's a bit trickier because you can you can appreciate in principle what it ought to be, which is the aggregation of all the capital employed. But you immediately run into problems because there's no way of measuring that. We don't need to worry about why that's the case. It's just interesting to appreciate. Now, what this, the metric you want, by the way, is uh, with a company would be profit over capital employed. You can tweak that in various ways, like return on equity is actually slightly more specific, not that important to this discussion. But the way you interpret it is really important because that tells you, should tell you most of the time, something like how sustainably can this grow? As opposed to revenue going up from one year to the next, which has tells you nothing whatsoever about sustainability. And so back to what you were mentioning before about all this like tech bubble nonsense that all the investment has gone to, very easy way to verify that that capital was all misallocated is that it has never generated any return, maybe not never, but mostly has not generated any returns on capital. Their revenue has gone up and up and up, and hence they're very exciting and grow, growing and whatever else. But their 
just fundamentally poor investments for the most part. And in, in macroeconomics, it's it's the same thing. If you Is that care, only managed, is that only truly known as a net across the economy? Because you could have individual examples where there is a high return, but... Of course, yeah. But, but the yeah. only way you really know is net across the economy, capital investors versus return. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think this is what you were getting at anyway, that if you only care about GDP going up, which is the aggregate equivalent of just a company's revenue yeah. going up, that is by no, it could be a good thing, but there's no guarantee whatsoever that that actually reflects anything good having happened to cause it. And that's where the broken window fallacy comes in. In the broken window fallacy, your stock is clearly going down because you have one less window now. But your revenue is, your flow is going up because you have to spend time fixing it. Because you employed a glazier. Yeah. And so you're, in that case, clearly your return would be negative because you've just wasted time. But it could be perceived as growth. But if you only care as the point of the fallacy, right? If you only care about the activity, then you see it as a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so you, and this actually, this ties back to loads of things we've talked about already. This is, well, that is capital misallocation, right? Um, aggregating this to an economy as a whole is, uh, <clears throat> oh, sorry, take a sip. But just while you're having a drink, going back to the, that fallacy, though, it's very mm. easy to see why people perceive that as growth and a good thing because, yeah, of course. The, yeah, because yeah. the other thing's invisible. Yes, the, the second yes order effect exactly. So this is why a moment ago when I said, if you aggregate this to the entire economy, it's very tricky because the capital employed part, you can't really measure properly. Mm-hmm. You can appreciate what it should be, but there's no way of really knowing what it is, which is why you have to be rigorous and disciplined when you're thinking about it. Because it's basically where this, where this falls out is just intellectual laziness. It's like, can't measure that. Oh, but I can measure that. So I'll just measure that. So we have to be a little bit more sophisticated <laughs> and honest in how we yeah. measure things. Yeah. Hmm. And almost all, not just capital misallocation, but I, I mean, we're at a point like zero or negative interest rates is just capital consumption falls into this trap. If you... If you're consuming capital, that's growth. That's, I mean, that's what, that is like revenue, GDP are essentially measures of consumption, right? Not value added, just, you know, not, not how much value did you create, just how much value did you like move around, right? If you consume capital, you've got growth, but you almost by definition have negative returns. You're destroying real wealth, but you're making yourself feel good because you're doing something at least. So how does Bitcoin fix all of this? <laughs> I almost I almost feel like this is where we'd want to end it and go, we need a part two. We do with Sasha as well. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm thinking, we've got nine minutes, we, we have to be somewhere in a bit. There's one question I really want you to ask first though. The uh... you, you want to ask, you ask it. All right. <laughs> Don't be um, so in the book, or actually I think it's in the article is originally. It the, is it the, the, is the genitals thing again? The what's <laughs> Genitals. The flicking the genitals. <laughs> no, no. Um, so you say Bitcoin's not a sword for thesis to fight the Minotaur, but a thread to follow to mm-hmm. exit the labyrinth. Um, basically saying like people, um, like opposition of Bitcoin are going to start saying that it's like a hostile <sighs> thing. Mm-hmm. We interviewed Jason Lowry two days ago, yep. who obviously mm-hmm. is 
a proponent of Bitcoin or supposedly, and he's saying that it's a violent thing. And I'm very curious in your take of it. So I, I'm hesitant to address this because I don't want to misrepresent his view. And I honestly don't know exactly what it is. I've kind of steered clear of, I don't want to say steer clear of him, but like it's a very Bitcoin Twitter thing. It kind of goes back to what I was saying before, honestly, that like my, <laughs> I don't consider myself to really have that much expertise about Bitcoin specifically. So I don't really comment on most of that kind of thing on Twitter. I just comment on fiat fuckery. My view on Jason Lowry following the interview is we all have a way of explaining Bitcoin to our cohorts. And he's found a way of explaining mm -hmm. Bitcoin to his cohorts. But he, if you hold him at face value and you believe and trust him, he wants the same as what we do. Mm -hmm. And he's seen the influence he can have is within the USG. Mm -hmm. And then therefore he's trying to explain Bitcoin in exactly the same way as I am, but through the lens of uh, the the military industrial complex. That's right. my view. <laughs> I guess right. I guess kind of like what we were talking about before the interview, you were saying you're writing these um papers for like very traditional finance people to understand. Mm -hmm. And I guess he's doing the same thing, but for the military to understand, perhaps. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I haven't read it though. So I right. this is what I'm saying. I don't yeah. want to but, he, but, I, but I, I can like it, it, maybe you can just ask me a question from like just in your words and i'll do my best to respond to that and not act like i'm responding to him well, well go back to the point that danny said is that what's the specific part of the quote where they will f try and frame it well you in the book you say you think opponents of bitcoin will try and smear it as like a hostile thing mm -hmm. um and i the point i was trying to make is that we now have like proponents doing the exact same thing right. I th so so yeah so he's not a, he's position himself as a proponent i don't think he's positioning it as hostile itself i think he's positioning that the the race for bitcoin between nation states will naturally become hostile because they're hostile to each other mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah that seems reasonable it's e kind of bland econo <laughs> economic warfare exists already mm -hmm. the dollar Germany yeah. versus. I mean, I don't see what this has to do with Bitcoin, though. This well, so no, but he, what he's odd. saying, he's saying Bitcoin. I don't want to say the word violence, but he he, I mean, he said the word. He said Bitcoin yeah, but violent. I think he's walked that back a little bit, hasn't he? I mean, maybe if you if you're not like very familiar with the word, maybe we'll just cut this section and leave it out. No, no, that's fine. Just put the motherfucker <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> I mean, well, I, I can address he's that. Scottish. Anyway. That's a good example, right? He's right? used to violence from us. <laughs> um, no, Bitcoin is absolutely not violence. I can't think of any sane interpretation. I mean, it, it, that's even coming from a point where the section you're quoting from, almost, or the chapter rather, almost everything in there is deliberately rhetorical. It's it's not, you know, Bitcoin is not literally, which one is that? Ariadne, clearly. It's not literally gravity. But these are, I think, helpful or at least amusing avenues to interrogating its properties. So if you say Bitcoin is literally violent, I think that's just blatantly nonsense. I'm also very skeptical that you could possibly use it in the way I say Bitcoin is gravity, for example, and still, still arrive at anything useful. In particular, because one of the things I say is, um, well, it's titled Bitcoin is Logos just because I'm being pretentious, but it means Bitcoin is speech. Mm -hmm. And speech is not violence. Speech is definitively not violence. And so it would seem to 
be contradicted by something I've already said without really needing to add that much more. Yeah. Mm. This has been fucking brilliant, by the way. I'm going oh, to great time. I'm going to wax lyrical afterwards. Uh, I wanted to get into the Bitcoin solution. I thought that it might be another two hours. I think uh, I'm going to I'm going to call this one because we spent right. two hours on this brilliantly. But we're going to very quickly ask when can we do this again? Because I think well, there's I don't know. We've been trying to do this for well, a year. Well, we we're going to want to do part two, and part sure. two yeah. will be okay. Why is Bitcoin the solution? And yeah, yeah. what does it solve? And what does it change? But I just think I just think we're not going. We won't do it justice if we try and fit it in now. And so I think this is a, a worthy end into a brilliant, brilliant fucking conversation and we will bring it back. Alan, do, is there any way you want to send people? No, not really. All right, this well, we will... Twitter's fine. It's, we will link to the... Hang out there. The, all the articles in the book in the show notes. I've, oh, I should uh, talk about the book. I mean, we've obviously been referring yeah. to the book quite a lot, so I should I maybe conclude with some details on that. So you can get it on Amazon. If you want to pay in Bitcoin, you can get it from Bitcoin Magazine. If you want it just for free, uh, you can get a PDF from my website, which is... Um, you should probably put this in the show notes as well. I guess it's not that Fuck great. Fuck the free one. Let people pay. <laughs> read out a URL, but it's pretty simple. It's www.uncerto. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> pay. Fucking <laughs> pay. No, I. No, no. So this is this is important. Actually, I. You pay if you want. Obviously, if you want a physical copy, you have to pay. Um, it was really important to to me and to Sasha and to Alex Gladstein, who wrote the foreword, that there is an option for it to be free yeah, as well. Yeah, just make them work to so, find it. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, yeah, fine. I won't tell you exactly how to it's get it. It's out there for free if you, you want You can get it. a free version if you want to look for it. But um, if, you do, uh, if you do buy it via any of those avenues, um, the ex Bitcoin Magazine have been excellent on this, or well, I mean, they were a year ago when they set this up. After they've made their money back in the production costs, all of the profits are going to the Human Rights Foundation. Oh, so that's okay. a reason yeah, to so definitely buy it. pay for it, as well as you know having a physical one is good. But there, yeah, it's good. I, I like that approach. Right, there are ways to get it for free, but no. you have to earn them. So you don't make a penny on the book. No, very cool, Alan. Honestly, brilliant. Love this. Cannot wait to do this again in seven years or whenever we can tie you down. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, thank you. All right, come on. How good was that one? Alan is so good. God, he's so smart. Um, love talking to him. Love making the show. It's taken a while. It's taken a long time to try and get us together in person, but we finally did it. And listen, if you haven't read Bitcoin is Venice, go and check it out. It's actually Danny's favorite writings about Bitcoin. Now, I do want to try and get Alan and his co-author, Sasha, on the show together at some point, so keep an eye out for that one. We will definitely make that happen. Also, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 